He just has so many robes. I know. Like, he has he a just, robe, I just and then he has... like he like has to take off. He's like, I will be the Phoenix King, and then right? just like puts on more robes all over <laughs> his robes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um... was a really big fan of book three honestly book two will always be my favorite but book three like i feel like it started off kind of slow and i was kind of eh about it but it really like it really like took off after the invasion and then the finale like chef's kiss yeah i think that book three has my favorite bending moments though i think book two has my favorite like narrative moments no, I will say I feel like the humor is that there are like there are many more hilarious moments that I remember from book three, like the part mm. where like Sokka thinks that Suki is coming in, but it's actually Zuko. Oh my god! Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and he just straight up that eats that rose. You ever notice that yeah. he just straight up eats the rose that was in his mouth? <laughs> And then, oh, um, who could forget the Melon Lord? Melon Lord, Melon Lord Ozai, yes. He, he, he was the buster buster of Avatar The Last <laughs> Yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, crossover, unexpected crossover. Yes, Say hi exactly. to the camera. Jules! Aw, if only she could talk and be a part of the show. I know. She, I'm sure she'd have lots of great opinions. <laughs> I know. She's clearly well-versed in nerd culture. I mean, she Give lives with me, doesn't she? True. <laughs> Maybe it has a transitive property. Just the nerdiness. She's absorbed it all with her super smart brain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um... Yeah, I would agree. Like, book three, I think, was kind of the height of the show in some ways. I think book two had, like, a more, I agree, like, better narrative. And then I think if, if book three hadn't started off so slow and, like, with all those episodic things, I did, I thought the dancing episode was kind of cute, but, you know, like, the Footloose episode? Yeah. But in the I end, think... it's just Footloose, you know? Yeah, but I think, like, a lot of that is also, like, they're working to humanize the Fire Nation and kind of show, like, how in the dark so many of its inhabitants are with, like, the atrocities that are occurring and why. So it's, like, an interesting exploration in the sense that it's, like, exploring, like, what it means to live in, like, a totalitarian regime and not really realize it. That's true. Um, I kind of wish that that had, like, been more in play and, like, the actual show because when you think about it like the we never i mean we get to see the impact of the citizens like what how how the war affects them but 
I don't know. It just seems like there's never any like payoff to that. You know, we just sort of mm-hmm. see the impact and then we never really see like, I don't know. It doesn't really seem to affect, it's sort of like, it's more of a world building thing than part of the narrative, which I think, I guess is fine. It just, I don't know. It would have been cool to see like how the Fire Nation soldiers, you know, soldiers like react to the whole war and um, maybe have like some citizens who actually are like upset with Ozai and not, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, these are just random thoughts. I like yeah, Leo was really her. great. I just feel like maybe it would have been cool to see like more of that, like sort of how you can deconstruct a totalitarian society. No, I guess that could also just kind of show the level of control that the Fire Nation exerted over its citizens in terms of information. But we're we need to we need to scoot this along to uh, uh, the finale, which is what both of our questions kind of deal with today. And so, Ron. You know, speaking of of guards and soldiers and all that, how can we forget, you know, the delightful moment on the airship where he's like, it's my birthday! (laughs) I can't believe you (laughs) That was gold. Honestly, yeah, that was gold. Yeah. But, um, in any case, uh, I guess we'll start with your question today, or my question for you today, which is, you know, we have this massive Sozin's comment that's been built up through the entire series and, like, how powerful it is. Like, in the first hundred years, it allowed Sozin to wipe out the air nomads in one fell swoop and begin the Hundred Years' War. And then Ozai's plan is to do the same, basically, um, but to the Earth Kingdom. So my question is for you is, like, can we reliably understand how much power the Sozin's Comet gives to a firebender? Like, can we understand, like, the magnitude of Ozai's plan to just basically raise the Earth Kingdom to the ground? So, it's a little hard to quantify, like, exactly how strong a bender is or isn't, um, just in general. I've noticed that we can sort of tell, like, how dist- how much area and how much force they exert, um, just based on what they're able to burn. But fire, actually, is a little bit unique in the sense that a fire can spread out of control, and a fire can cause a lot of damage. Even a small one can grow out of control and become incredibly strong. So if we want to look at how much, you know, how strong an average firebender is versus a combat-enhanced firebender, uh, we could look at a few things. We could look at how far the fire blasts reach. We could look at how much damage they do. We could look at, for example, how much land they're able to destroy. But uh, one way that I think we can sort of get a scope, an idea of how powerful the Fire Nation or the Firebenders become with fire, with uh, Sozin's Comet, <laughs> there we go, um, how powerful they become with Sozin's Comet by just looking at the landscape and the wide shots that they give us. So, um... We know that Fire Lord Sozin's a pretty evil dude, right? Pretty mean, yeah. slightly... Well, I think we can agree on this, that he would not be someone... Um, not really good at parties. Does Probably not. not. Unless they're evil parties. Maybe he's good Unless at those. Unless they're evil parties. <laughs> um, but could he even... You know, trying to burn down the Earth Kingdom, kind of a dick move, I think we can agree. But could he even do it? That's the question I was sort of trying to think about. Um... Uh, so, 
Honestly, I sort of went more with this than the, I guess, more of the original question. I guess that's fine. uh, It was more like, I was trying to quantify, like, how much stronger it would be. But I was more trying to take it from an angle of, like, what the impact of, more just, like, how much they could actually burn. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know, we were talking, when we were talking about researching our our questions for this week, you know, you know, you run into problems sometimes and you just have to modify what you're looking at. And I think that's pretty okay. I do that all the time. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, I try to narrow the scope a little bit just because the fire bending abilities kind of vary wildly from depending who you're looking at. There's Zuko, there's Iroh, and there's just ordinary firebender soldiers. So I decided to think about, okay, once we have the, once we have Sozin's Comet, we may, Mm -hmm. the main ones we see, we see like in Bossing Say, we see ordinary Firebender soldiers defending it against the uh, White Lotus. So we can sort of get an idea of how strong they become. But the main, the main place where we see some intense fire running is obviously with Ozai and all of his airships. So we don't really know how big the world of Avatar is. So to get an idea of how how much it would take to destroy the Earth Kingdom, we don't really have a good starting number. But what we can do is um, what we can do is sort of figure out how big the area is where Anganoza's battle takes place, and sort of estimate just based on the animation how much he's able to destroy in a certain amount of time. We get okay. a really good shot of Ozai burning down the forest. It's known as the Wulong Forest, apparently. And he, for about a minute of screen time, he's able to burn, I would estimate, maybe a square mile, which is about 640 acres. So, then, we have, I know, right? And we have 14 other airships right behind them with the Imperial Firebenders. We see on screen, Ozai is bending a huge cone of fire. And uh, I did some calculations that sort of figure out how big that cone of fire is. So we can say that the cruising altitude of the ships is probably about a mile in the air. I decided to use nice, easy numbers. Um, so if he's about a mile in the air and the flames are about a thousand, uh, just, just looking at it visually, I would estimate maybe about a thousand feet on either side. So he's bending about... 2 times 10 to the 7th square feet of flames, which translates to um, a little bit less than a square mile, but we'll round it up just because, you know, error bars and all that. Um, so we see the rest of the fleet. They're all they're all blasting this column to fire. They're, they're just as long, we can, from what we can tell, but they don't spread out nearly as much. It looks to me, just from what, re-watching um, uh, episode... I believe it was episode three when they finally start doing everything of, of the finale. Right. Uh, into the Inferno. So he's able to burn a, a couple acres before Aang interferes. And then the airships um, are moving pretty slow. So we know they're not just going to be like blasting through, just blasting through all that territory. They're kind of, it's kind of going to be a slow burn. So instead of estimating based on the speed of the airship, uh, which would be probably about 70 miles an hour, given the average speed of a Zeppelin in the real world. Um, 
We all, we see the rest of the ships. They're all blasting the columns of fire. I counted in the frame. There are 14 other airships. And they all kind of need to combine their powers to even get the same amount of energy that just Fireboard Ozai is able to do on his own. So let's say that uh, he burns out 640 acres in a minute. And then the, cap, the boost from the comet lasts 24 hours, even though we kind of see it leaving the atmosphere by the end of their battle. So really the boost is only going to be like a couple of hours at most. I don't even right. know how long are they fighting for? Like 30 minutes? I don't know. Time is relative in Avatar world. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Especially because they're cutting between like three different battles. True. Um, but let's say let's say it's twenty four hours. Uh, if they have if if all of them burn together for that same amount of time, uh, it would be roughly twenty. Uh, it would be about twenty eight hundred eighty square miles of the Earth Kingdom. But let's say all the firebenders can... That, that would just be Ozai alone. Let's say all of his Imperial firebenders can burn that same amount. He would Then we would end up with 21,600 square miles, or a whopping 13,824,000 acres in just one day. To give that a little bit of perspective, um, we look at, like, British Columbia. The biggest fire ever recorded happened in British Columbia back in 1950. And that burned about 3 million acres, which kind of, and that was over the course of five months. And pretty small compared to the, wow. yeah, it's pretty small even compared to the rest of British Columbia, but still it's massive, like millions of, of square acres of forest just gone. And so the firebenders would be burning about three times that, or four times that amount in just one day. Jesus Christ. Yup. <laughs> so, here's the thing. Their plan is to burn down the Earth Kingdom, right? And there's even if we say they're, they're ignoring the desert and everything south of that, even if they just go straight from the, the forest to Ba Sing Se, which is, I looked at the map, it's more or less just a diagonal path. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're just burning that. If, if they just burn that, then it's probably... Let's just be generous and say like a tenth of the continent. Let's say the desert is huge and just a significant portion of it. Even if they're only getting through that, if we compare it to Asia in the real world, it's about 21 million square miles. There's no way they're getting through 2 million or even 200,000 square miles in in one day with those slow-moving airships. It's just not happening. Even if they were moving 70 miles an hour... Still too much ground to cover. But what I thought about was this. You have, let's say they weren't interrupted. They just burned everything for like 24 hours or even even one hour. Let's, let's say, I'm going to do a quick calculation here. Let's say they burned it all in one hour. That's still... calculations in real time. <laughs> That's how you know we're we're doing the good work here. <laughs> That's still 900 square miles or 576,000 acres. And that's that's in one day. How large is that? Like cuz like those are big numbers. Like 
How so? How large is that? Um, let me see. I'm gonna look up the area of the largest national forest. So the largest national forest is twenty six thousand one hundred square miles. So. Whoa. That's the largest national forest. And then let's look at something like, hmm. And, and how okay. much they were burning? They were going, um, so they were going to burn, okay, so here, I found a good number. So um, the Yellowstone Forest, right? That's about yeah. a million, that's about a million acres. Right. So... Our low estimate, if it only has a, if we only have the power for one hour, they're burning half that much. If they have it for twenty-four hours, they're burning thirteen times that much. Oh my in god! In one day, most That's... wildfires, keep in mind, burn for months or at least weeks. Yeah, that's catastrophic. So that's how big your fire started. And I'm going to get to my next part, which is. Um, why would a comp, how does the combat enhance the firebending? That's the other question I wanted to think about here. Like, it's, it's a, it's a rock flying through the sky. It's now, a magical space rock. It is, it is a space rock. We don't know how it's, they should have made it connected to the spirits or something, just to explain it a little better, but that's fine. Spirit rock. Spirit rock. Woo. Um, so... This this comet is like it's very weird. It's got a hundred year periodic orbit, which through which it enters Earth's atmosphere, and you can clearly see there's a comet tail. So it's a comet. You know, the comets mm -hmm. as they uh, travel, um, the ice evaporates and creates a cloud of of gas along with the cloud of dust, which is just matter falling off of it. Right. Um, this comet enters Earth's atmosphere and then leaves it. That doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just not a thing. It would either hit the Earth, which, you know, everyone would be kind of screwed. Yes. Um, or it would just burn up. No more souls in the comet. Just like we see shooting stars in the sky. It's just meteorites burning up. Also, Little tidbit, uh, once it enters Earth's atmosphere, it's a meteorite at that point, so <laughs> it should be called Sozin's meteorite. Well, they had an astronomer, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, and then he ended up in the library in the desert. <laughs> I don't know if they had anyone else, I'm <laughs> sure that they were not studying that. Was, was <laughs> he an astronomer? I don't think he was. Astronomer. Maybe he was. Like, I don't know, he was just a scientist. I think he was like an anthropologist, actually. Yeah, that sounds right. Because I remember he was like, Wan Chi Tong was like, oh, unless you want to become the stuffed head of anthropology or something. That Oh, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, but yeah, uh, what was I talking about? So we, we don't technically know if it's if it's a comet or, a, or an asteroid because we don't know if it's made of ice or rock. Asteroids being made of rock and comets being made of ice. But we do actually see... Um, right as the comet is entering, uh, we do kind of see a comet tail effect, which is, 
again, caused by solar radiation, causing the comet to vaporize and stream out of the nucleus of the comet, which carries dust along it, along the way. So it's actually pretty cool. Do you know most comets actually have two tails? Oh. One, for, yeah, one is a, um, one is a dust, and one is dust, and one is gas. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So, so we have a dust gas tickle comet that grants firebenders with big heckin' powers. See, it doesn't make sense. You'd think it's an ice, it's made of ice. Why would it grant firebenders power? But there is, believe it or not, an actual scientific explanation for how this makes sense. Okay. Hit so, me with it. So, uh, despite that it's not a comet, or it, it behaves very strange for a comet, um, it uh, actually would make sense that it would enhance the firebender's powers because when a meteor enters the atmosphere, it heats it up as much as 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And mm -hmm. a lot of people think it's because of friction, but actually it's because they're compressing the air in front of them and that heats up, and that significantly heats up the air around it. It's a phenomenon okay. known as ram pressure. Ram so, pressure. Ram pressure. So as it as it's going through the atmosphere, there's just a whole lot of air resistance in front of it, and it, and because it's moving so fast, uh, about thirty thousand miles an hour, it's just compressing that air so much and it's heating up. So that creates superheated air, and apparently it's not a localized thing either. Like if a, if a meteor hits in like Russia, you're not gonna you're not gonna see or feel anything over here. But right. apparently, in the way this this uh, magic meteor works is, um, it he, it seems like it has an effect all over the globe. Yeah, because like the the sky like reddens for the entirety of the event. Right. Yeah, you see like the red sky and. I mean, to me, you know, in my, because in the super scientific world of Avatar, that clearly indicates that the air has become, um, has become superheated. Hmm. Or, you know, it could just be like, um, it could just be similar to the red glow up during the sunset. That's <laughs> it's or it could just be, it could just be, you know, an artistic choice just because... Big serious time equals God, red. Just overthink it. We're we're all about overthinking in this series. We really are. Like that's that's like half of our job. Like wait until we get to the like my segment. You're gonna just be like, what the fuck is happening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. We're gonna get real granular, mm -hmm. real fast. Um, but yes. But yes. So, uh, so the, think about it. The air is you know, hundreds or thousands of degrees hotter, then what is that going to do if you're trying to if you're trying to combust the air with your chi to firebend? You're going to firebend a lot. You're going to, like, the air's going to need very little chi to combust at that point. Because it's already incredibly hot. Think about, like, why are the firebenders stronger in, during the day? You know, sun's out. It's hotter. You get hot air. If the air has become significantly hotter than, you know, on a normal day, it stands to reason you're going to be able to firebend about 
I mean, if, if we want to just try to randomly estimate based on that number, if the air heats up to around 3,000 degrees in the atmosphere, it's not going to be obviously on the ground, but if the atmosphere is that hot, um, let's look up what the normal atmospheric temperature is. So basically, like, I mean, it could also be, because, like, it's probably not only hotter, but also drier. It is also drier, that's true. I was, um, I was going to discuss that as well. Like, yeah, it is, it is definitely drier. Um, and, of so, course, we don't have the meteor actually impacting the planets. Um, but if we did, then that would cause a lot of... I mean, that would cause fires as well, the form, and what am I saying right now? Uh, I'm just... We can, we can move on from this point if you're feeling... Kind oh, nah. Um, I, would, I was still getting my conclusion. So, actually, yeah, when we have the air being around 30,000 or um, 3,000 degrees hotter, uh, and the air being quite a bit drier as well, let me see if... Um, yeah, so that should be fine. Uh, then you just have the perfect factors for for fire bending to uh, fire words hard. Yeah, you just have like perfect. You just have the perfect conditions for fire bending. So ten out of ten bending conditions. Oh basically. yeah, definitely. Um, imagine actually, imagine for a second if you had Sozin's comet and then you had the day of Black Sun at the same time. Hmm. Just imagine you're I like. Think, would, it, would you just generate the same amount of fire then? Because it wouldn't compound. I don't know. I mean, I feel like supposedly they'd lose their fire bending. But let's say if the air was hot and dry enough already before the eclipse, I don't see why you couldn't still fire bend. I mean, hmm. something, something magic, obviously, but. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of. <laughs> I think what we shouldn't science this a little too hard, because, I mean, at this point, we've already discovered that, A, Sozin's Comet is not a comet. <laughs> well, Secondly, the thing, like... The other thing about is comets... Is there lower gravity on the Avatar world, that it's not getting sucked into the orbit and then just crashing into Earth? It just kind of, like... I mean, it shouldn't matter. It's I don't see how it's propelling itself back out of the... out of Earth's gravity on its own, like, that's just not how gravity works. <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, I mean, if, if, if there wasn't that one frame showing it entering the atmosphere, if it was just a very close flyby, for example, mm -hmm. like, there are, there are asteroids and meteors that pass, like, uh, within the orbit, within Earth's orbit all the time, like, geosynchronous, right. and they don't hit us, they just pass by. If it was just a flyby, that would be fine. I mean, a near-Earth object in space, okay, that's not going to really cause any direct impact, but at the very least, it would still be, like, it would make sense from a physics perspective at that point. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, we're just finding all of the... This is this is, this has become... Um, this went from queries and theories to Ron and Ivy ruin Avatar. Right? Like, Ron, <laughs> like Ron and Ivy destroy your childhoods and dreams. With facts and logic. <laughs> no, it's with facts and logic. That's what um, I'm going to put in the description. You gotta speak out the capital letters, Ivy. <laughs> That's going in the description. <laughs> <laughs> That's, in this episode.
episode, Ron and Ivy destroy your favorite childhood shows with facts and logic. Epic takedown. <laughs> Epic takedown. <laughs> Slammed. <laughs> Animators can't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, going back to the original sort of question I was trying to answer, um, even if the even if we consider that the comet doesn't empower the firebenders for very long, it actually doesn't really matter when you think about it because all they have to do is set the fire. Wildfires aren't big when they start; it's usually just a campfire burning out of control or lightning striking some dry brush. But then, depending on the wind conditions, the humidity. Um, other factors like the like the terrain, it can spread like it could just spread like crazy. And like wildfire. Like wildfire, yeah. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, we can also figure if if Sozin's comet is comet is um making uh, I did air quotes there for some, yeah there were air quotes see, just people can't for the, see it for home. the non seeing audience <laughs> um. Uh, even normal firebenders are able to bend at, like, crazy levels, then we can also assume it's going to be pretty conducive for fire to spread pretty quickly. And if we're talking, um, if we're talking a starting size of 13 million acres, or even half a million acres, or even, even, like, 1,000 acres, honestly... That's still bigger than pretty much every wildfire would ever start at. So then, the fire's already there, what's going to happen? It's going to spread all over the place if no one interrupts it. I mean, sure, maybe they could get all the waterbenders in the Northern Water Tribe to come down and put it out. Like, and they they just walk around with a giant thing of water to just whoosh, whoosh it all the way. Yeah, but at that uh, or, point, I feel like they would just be going and, like... Because, like, the goal, like, they already have controlled Ba Sing Se and Omashu, which were the, like, pretty much, as far as we can tell, the last holdouts of, like, major Earth Kingdom society. So at that point, it's just more a matter of just wiping people out than it is of trying to maintain control, because they can just, like... It looks like with the way that they have in, like, the battle for bossing, say, with the White Lotus, it, like, they have all of those tanks there with firebenders who could probably just go about raising the entire city from there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, yeah, that, that was sort of, like, that's sort of the point I was trying to make, where they're not trying, like, it doesn't matter if they can't burn down the whole Earth Kingdom just in one, in one shot. All they have to do is set these, this massive fire, and it's going to cause so much damage before, I mean, I doubt they're going to be able to contain anything of that size. Um, I mean, eventually it's going to burn itself out. Before it does, it's going to burn untold millions of acres and cause so much destruction and devastation that it's just, it's just unreal. Um, I also realized... Just a little aside. I feel like I've been kind of going between acres and square miles. I don't know if that's going to be confusing. Um, I mean, I think it'll be okay. Because, like, I mean, you the, the thing that was most helpful is when you compared it to, like, in terms of Yellowstones. Just because, like, 
I mean, I think that they, like, XKCD, like, did, like, a whole thing about, like, once you start throwing out big numbers, your brain, like, can't really conceptualize it. And so that's why, like, everything in, like, high school textbooks, at least, like, American high school textbooks are, like, measured in terms of, like, football field lengths, because, like, we can visualize that. Like, I can visualize how big a Yellowstone Park amount of land would be. So, like, when you put it in, like, oh, it would be, like, 13 times the size of Yellowstone. I'm like, oh, that's huge. That's terrible. That's a really, I'm seeing the problem here. Like, I understood the problem, but now I'm really understanding the gravity of the issue here. Okay. Um, Yeah. I I just want to make sure, in case you want to, like, I don't know. Um... It would probably remain hot and, and dry enough for days for this fire to just keep spreading and spreading. And by the time it's out, one way or another, uh, you're going to have a significant loss of crops, forestation, and wildlife. And there's not going to be food for anybody. We're probably going to burn tons of villages along the way. The ones that survive aren't going to have anything to eat. So all in all, yeah, it, it's a pretty evil plan and it would have worked out great if it wasn't for those meddling kids see the thing that's funny about that though um is like yes it would work in the terms of like you would deal a heavy blow to the earth kingdom however it's also like this is like what's so like fascinatingly short-sighted about these kind of like fascist totalitarian regimes is just that they're so short-sighted because like isn't the bulk of like crop and like industrial production for the fire nation in earth kingdom colonies like so you're just raising everything to the ground and then creating a famine that you can no longer address because you're a tiny volcanic island that can't grow anything. You know This is not a good idea. This is all right. You don't invade Russia during the winter. Like it's just not a good thing. You know, I I'm thinking you're right, actually. What the hell was he going to do? Like, I'm thinking, oh yeah, just a bunch of villages like dotted along the forest and like other um there's all I mean, the Earth Kingdom got all kinds of terrains. You got desert, mountain, forest, um and there's plenty of farmland from what we've seen. But yeah, like there's there's your soldiers are all over the place. Um, you've got, yeah, your food supply is probably going to go all over the place there. You're going to have to import everything from the Fire Nation to Bossing Say from now on. Um, man, you're right. Oh my gosh, Ivy, you're like, yeah, you, you should It's be... almost like fascism is a loser ideology that only ends in death. Yeah, you're right. Huh. I wonder, that was intentional, I'm sure. <laughs> Or they just wanted to have Ozai be cartoonishly evil because he's weirdly the one non-complex villain in the entire show. He really is, but, like, I'm kind of okay with that because he's kind of, like, the big baddie at the end. Like, he's Mm -hmm. saved for so long to be, like, the baddiest baddie. So, like, you know, I mean, I think that's okay, and I think that you also do kind of have to make those sacrifices sometimes when you're telling really complex storytelling with everything else. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but, bottom line, long story short, Smokey the Bear would not be pleased. No, what what kind of bear? 
Oh yeah, Smokey the Platypus Bear or something. There we go. Yeah. Smokey the Platypus. <laughs> Although the invitation just says bear. <laughs> <laughs> See, here's the thing. They actually they say that all the time. But here's the thing. We see regular animals, too, in the world of Avatar. Like, we definitely see regular animals. They're not, like, we see regular cat, we see a regular cat in one episode. I think Iroh's, like, eats, like, regular duck in one episode. So which is it? Not everything's gotta be a hybrid, darn it. Maybe just the bear. Well, like, I mean, to be fair, like, it's not like these kids got out much before this, so, like, if your only, like, cultural context is being in, like, basically Antarctica, or being in a block of ice for a hundred years, or being Toph, where you're just in, like, a bizarre pro-wrestler league, like, there's not, like, a lot of context. I don't really think there are, like, except for the one zoo that's made during Tales of Bossing Say, there's not a whole lot going on in terms of formalized education, I would say. I, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. Um, so one of the other things that I loved about book three was just the resolution of Zuko's arc, because we've been following him and his inner turmoil throughout the entire series. And man, it, honestly, in my opinion, and I think many would agree, like one of the best arcs, if not the best in all of, all of fiction, really. Like it's just so beautifully executed. Uh, but Ivy, could you explain a little bit more about what Zuko's inner conflict is about? Yeah, so um, in an effort to kind of zero in on this, because like you said, it does span the entirety of the series, um, I'm kind of going to focus on pretty much like the events of episodes three and four with that final Agni Kai uh, between him and Azula. And like, the events that build up to it and how it relates to his inner journey and how it kind of completes those cycles while also providing a coda to like his betrayal at the end of season two. Um, and so to do that, I'm going to basically just kind of go through the Agni Kai's in the order that we, we, the audience saw them, which is kind of as a summary, then I'm going to move into, um, just a brief discussion of what like the main standout points are of Zuko's journey. And then from there, we're going to take those two things to kind of analyze and break down uh, what's happening in the final fight. So bear with me, there's going to be a bit of jumping around. So I hope that this makes sense. Um, Go for it. Alrighty. So yeah, we have, um, of course, like in terms of Aggie Kai's, we did uh, kind of tackle the first one, which is in season one, episode two, between Zuko and Zhao. Um, as, as we discussed in uh, episode one on Avatar The Last Airbender, it, it's more kind of just to there to introduce the audience to the idea of an Agni Kai and explain how like basically firebending culture works. Like the Agni Kai is uh, supposed to be like this hundreds of years old dueling ceremony that is like intrinsic to firebending, like the Fire Nation's culture. Um, so basically like what that does is like sets up what the Agni Kai is. Um, and it also sets up basically like Zhao, you know, saying that he was weak for not striking him when he when Zuko had Zhao at a disadvantage. So the stakes of that Agni Kai are fairly low. Um, the second one that we see is actually in uh, 
in flashback form via season one, episode 12, The Storm, in which um, Iroh is basically telling Zuko's crew about how Iroh, um, Iroh, no, Zuko got his scar. Um, and so this, we'll put a pin on this because we're going to come back to this episode later. But like, basically what that is, is like, the stakes are, um, is just basically how Zuko got banished. And he got banished for speaking out at a war room meeting regarding like a strategy wherein one of the generals wanted to sacrifice new recruits in order to just have like a paltry victory, um, which like Zuko was like, no, that's wrong. Like, you can't just do that to our soldiers. Um, and he expected, you know, that he was going to have to face the general in an Agni Kai, when in fact he had to face his own father because it was his war room, and so he had technically um, disrespected the Fire Lord. Um, and so the setting for this is, like, it's a very public duel. Um, like, you see that, like, there's a crowd. Um, Iroh, Zhao, and Azula are shown to be in attendance, um, and Zuko is, is really actually banished and disgraced for refusing to fight his father. And if I, I just kind of want to pause and, and also, like, you know, remember, like, or remind the audience and ourselves that Zuko is 14 years old when this is happening. 14. Asked to fight his own father, who he knows is, like, just, you know, a master firebender. And so basically, like, he is, you know, publicly shamed and mutilated for this and then is sent on this mission to, quote unquote, restore his honor that for to find an avatar who's been gone for a century. Um, and so that's that's the second time that we see that. Um, and so, like, Zuko's honor in this sense being his role as heir apparent to the Fire Lord throne, and also kind of his identity and place in his family. Um, what I do think is kind of interesting about this moment is because Iroh is, like, telling the crew about this, is that that kind of suggests that, like, only certain people knew what happened to Zuko. Because, like, Zhao knew because he was there, but he's a high-ranking official versus the crew, which were completely in the dark and had been serving Zuko in this quest for two years, and yet they don't know. And so, like, that was just something kind of interesting with, like, how information, I guess, kind of keeps, is is separated in, like, we've even within the Fire Nation, because, like, I remember, like, the crew guy saying, like, oh, I just thought it was, like, a training accident or something. You know, he didn't think that something, like, his own father had done that to him. Um, and then, of course, we have um, the season three finale, Sozin's Common Parts 3 and 4, and that's the Agni Kai between Zuko, Katara, and Azula. And so before I kind of get into that, like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to just kind of summarize, like, you know, Zuko and Katara go to face Azula and take back the throne, basically. And so, like, that's what it is. Um, and that's where we kind of get the interesting things because this is where um, a lot of the, the themes that are in Zuko's story basically come to a head and it's where he kind of completes his journey and, you know, ascends as Fire Lord Zuko. And so just kind of looking back, we're going to talk about different parts of Zuko's journey, which kind of basically all have to revolve around uh, Zuko's identity and the tension between 
Zuko's role as prince of the Fire Nation, and Zuko the person. And it's important to recognize, like, that those are separate things, and that, like, that's kind of where a lot of his tension and anger come from. So, like, the first part of that is, of course, uh, his honor. Like, you know, Zuko is always being like, I need my honor. I need to restore my place. But, like, what does he mean by that, really? Like, on one level, he means that, like, socially, he needs to, you know, restore his place as heir apparent, as next in line. Um, so, like, there's that social component to his honor and his reputation. But on a deeper level, it's also kind of restoring his sense of self and his identity. Because he, you, you note he talks about early on his father will restore his honor for him. So it's kind of like he, in that point in the story, is still reliant on his father as both Fire Lord and as, you know, his parent to give him as his identity. And so as he gets older and as he, you know, changes throughout this journey um, and with kind of Iroh acting as a surrogate father and, and you know, guiding him, um, Zuko is able to kind of mature and become an adult and realize that his honor needs to be his own rather than, you know, something that is, you know, given to him by someone else. And, um, yeah, so, like, so much, for, so for much of the show, Zuko's desire for honor stems from anger and shame at his own apparent failure in the eyes of his father. And so that kind of takes us to the second part of his identity, which is the duality of destiny, which is, is what I call it, basically, um, wherein you have two different warring legacies that are within Zuko in the form of being a descendant from Sozin and Roku. Um, but further than that, you can also kind of extrapolate that that tension also plays upon the tension of Zuko the prince versus Zuko the person, because Zuko the prince needs to behave in a certain way to act as a fire lord. Like, he needs to be ruthless. He needs to be, you know, more like Azula. He needs to just be calculating and manipulating and willing to commit whatever atrocity necessary in order to gain total power. And that's not who Zuko is. Like, Zuko is merciful. Zuko is very um, connected to his emotions in a way that sometimes, you know, gets him in trouble. Like, the, him speaking out of turn, but doing so for the right reason. It's just, like, not having that control. And so, it's basically... What that sets up is that, like, that sets up the duality within him and the, the need to create balance within himself and between these two parts of himself, like, basically integrating the role as prince and the role and the person he is, is, like, central to his development. And so then the third thing that we, of course, need to discuss is, of course, the toxic sibling rivalry that occurs between Azula and Zuko. Because, I mean, the final Agni Kai is between two siblings, and Azula is the perfect antagonist because she is everything that Zuko is not. And so you always have her as, like, a comparison. Um, you know, like, she is calculating, she's a prodigy, she's able to just do so much more and has the same will to power and bloodless ambition that she shares with Ozai. 
And so, yeah, it's it's basically like you just kind of have this thing where like Azula is like the favored child of this dynamic because she fits better into the Fire Nation system. Like she is kind of a created like the result of this like bloodless power hungry ambition like that's her whole personality that's why she can't like when you see in the episode at the beach like she can't talk to normal people because she doesn't have any sort of personality outside of just basically manipulating and harming people (laughs) like she doesn't understand how to relate to people um whereas zuko i mean as like awkward and teenagery as he is like he can have relationships like he has a romantic relationship he can make friendships things like that like you know he has that humanity left the tldr for that section uh, is basically huh as a oh it's just i saw the tldr there <laughs> yeah I like that. um so zuko's honor is tied to his identity his identity is intention is intention because who he is and his value system does not match the role um, the value system of his family and the Fire Nation he was born into. So his journey is basically to build a value system of his own, to work through the trauma of his past without continuing the cycle of violence into the future. And that's a really important part. And so he does this personally with the help of Iroh and of course with avatars. And then also like this plays into the broader issue of like what the legacy of the Fire Nation will be going forward. And that creates the stakes for the Agni Kai because what they're deciding with this battle of the death of sorts is basically what's the Fire Nation future going to look like? And therefore, can they, you know, create balance in the world um, if the Fire Nation is ruled by like a despotic queen? <laughs> like, probably not. I mean, just, just as a quick aside, so when you think about it, Azula is going to banish everyone, or she's already started to banish everyone, and then the entire Earth Kingdom is going to be gone. Like, where the fuck is everybody going to go? To, like, the Water Tribe? Ember. <laughs> They're going to go to Ember Island. Ember Island? Take up residence in the abandoned air temples? Like, this was, this was just, like... This is, like, yes, what if the world was run by despots, but also, like, what if the world was run by, like, people who were batshit crazy megalomaniacal? (laughs) Yeah, and see, like, once again, cuts back to the main idea, which is just, like, you know, having power, like, the will to power for power's sake is just largely useless. Like, it just ends with a cycle of death and violence that doesn't stop until everything's been razed to the ground. Um, so yeah, so now we get to the, my favorite section, which is called, okay, so let's talk about the final Agni Kai already. And so I want to talk a little bit about the setting and just kind of make some notes about, um, how this is presented, because I think that that's like thematically important for the Agni Kai as well. Like in comparison to, um, Zuko's Agni Kai with his father, which was very public, this Agni Kai takes place basically in the coronation hall slash field um, to, and it's just empty. Like the whole, I think the whole city is empty because I'm pretty sure that Azula's banished everybody and who everyone who hasn't been banished has probably fled. Um, so it's just this empty coronation hall. And then 
Zuko, Azula, and Katara. And it's funny to think about that because it is the same coronation hall that maybe just days later is where, um, to a crowd of people from all nations, Zuko will be become Fire Lord and, you know, swear himself to a future of love and peace and balance by, like, with help from the Avatar. Um, so another note for this section as well is I wanted to just acknowledge um, the music for this, like, the way that it's scored. Like, I mean, also just, like, the music for the entire suite of Sozin's Comet is beautiful and amazing. Um, but there's something deeply sad and solemn about the music that begins to play when Zuko and Azula begin dueling. And I think that's in part because, like, the creators wanted to acknowledge that, like, you know, even though Zuko and Azula ha are in this fantastical world, they're also siblings that are basically being forced to fight to the death. And, like, it's just kind of, like, a symptom of this broader problem where power has ripped apart an entire family. really interesting how you just see like like the it's just not only from a narrative standpoint but just visually it just it's conveyed like brilliantly no dialogue just their entire every clash every like moment every note in the score just feels like intentional and it seems like they're really they're really showing a lot of duality but also also just representing just how tragic it all is like that the, the score isn't like intense or epic it's just sad and very yeah like you said very somber yeah, it almost feels like a funerary march in some moments where it's got that slow, like, percussive beat to it, where it's just like all you hear is just the blast of fire. And then maybe, like, you'll hear, like, some of, like, Azula, like, panting because she's just be been reduced to this animal state, basically, from through, like, just paranoia and insanity. I mean, you know, another point to point out like she is also 14 when this is happening and she's like you know behaving in such a way is already so like you know sociopathic and homicidal I mean say what you will about like teenagers but I would say that that's pretty intense um yeah. and like looking back on it it's just very sad like just very sad um but yeah so now we get to the section of how, Azuka, how Zuko wins, even though Azula is the better fighter, and why the bending matters. Um, and so what we want to talk about that's kind of different about the Agni Kai versus the previous Agni Kais we've seen is the inclusion of lightning and generating lightning. And so this is where it gets really interesting, and we're going to look at a few different parts throughout the series and how... Basically, the generation and redirection of lightning bending relates to Zuko's journey. So, Azula is the first character that, like, when, we when we're introduced to her, that's, like, the first thing we see her do, is that she can generate lightning and then just blast it all over the place. But it is not the first time in the series that we see a firebender actually interact with lightning. So, the first time that we see it happen is in, guess what, the episode The Storm. 
Iroh redirects lightning that is going at the ship away from the ship. And it is this event happens directly after he delivers the the information um, about how Zuko got banished. It's this like the ship is struck by lightning, and that forces Zuko and Iroh to work together with the crew to like save the ship and st- and like rescue each other from certain peril. And it's in that moment that that Iroh blasts the redirects the lightning away, so that. Which is like a, a tiny detail, and it is played for comedic effect at the time. Like he gets like frazzled and stuff, and it almost seems like something like a bit out of like Tom and Jerry or something. <laughs> um, but what that does is that it directly links lightning and the ability to redirect it to Zuko's trauma, which is then further explored when in like halfway through season two, the episode Bitter Work. Um, after Iroh is uh, wounded by Azula in that little, like, shootout thing, um, and he is attempting to teach Zuko how to generate lightning, it's, uh, he's how to generate lightning, and Zuko is continuously failing to generate lightning. He can't do it. It just turns into a puff of, like, explosion, and it's at this point that Iroh remarks like I had a feeling this was going to happen because in order to generate lightning you need to have like a peace you need to have peace of mind and Zuko cannot have that because he is you know quote too in too much turmoil and has too much anger and shame around his his banishment that he cannot draw from a place of peace in order to generate that additionally the ability, as it's explained in the show, like how firebenders generate lightning is by separating the positive and negative energy that's like in the air and then kind of acting as a current. Like they don't actually control the lightning, they just kind of guide it through. So it's basically about being able to create an imbalance and then make that balance move the way you want it to, such that it creates an explosive coming together so you have that duality again that imbalance being shown being shown through a physical manifestation in like lightning and Zuko can't do that because he's too imbalanced within himself he's too struck with that duality right oh also just a small aside so in Korra there's a ton of lightning benders Right. Are, are they all like super? Did they just like go to like a like a yoga studio and just find like a bunch of people who are like super? Hey, you seem pretty at peace. Want to go bend some lightning? Sure. See, <laughs> I was kind of wondering that myself because at that point, like, there it's that and metal bending, which are seen as pretty advanced bending techniques, are kind of just very commonplace. And so my thinking is maybe they've just like they understand bending more by that time such that like it isn't as mystical a thing like it's like lightning bending is now like oh no we can understand that you're just moving like i don't know the positive and negative ions in the air and like it doesn't require as much like of a spiritual connection to the art whereas like i mean of course it's also coming from iroh and iroh is much more mystical so that could be his perspective too true yeah no that's totally fair i mean like I don't know. I just, I just saw it. I just thought that was kind of funny. But anyway, yeah. So Zuko 
cannot bend lightning. I think it's entirely possible that he probably could, uh, like, after he, you know, does the whole dragons thing and, like, you know, finds his own purpose and is probably more of a, a stable human being. But, like, over the course of the show, we never actually see him lightning bend. Um, and so he has to learn how to redirect it. And how does he do that? He learns that from Iroh. And why does that matter? Because Iroh is the healing influence for Zuko and is so essential to his change as a character. And so what we have is basically, you know, Iroh is acting as a surrogate father for Zuko and passing on this technique. And it's like, that's a special thing because like, not only is that like indicative of their bond, it's also the difference between like generating lightning versus redirecting lightning is the difference between continuing a cycle of violence versus taking something that's like violent and deadly and explosive and being able to like move that away. And I just feel like that's a really good like visual metaphor for like taking like, you know, the difficult history of the Fire Nation and like his family and being able to take all of that violence and not continue that into the future. That's kind of his, his mission. And so it's important to note that this is also a moment where in bitter work, Iroh explains that like the four different elements and how it's important to draw from different sources of wisdom. And even Zuko's like, this sounds like avatar stuff. And it is, but it also kind of shows like how Zuko's journey acts as a mirror for Aang's own journey and development. Um, and, and like kind of sets Zuko up on this parallel path where he is also as much a part of returning balance and order to the world as Aang is. And that's just like a little, little cool aside. But what's most important is that Zuko learned, um, or sorry, Iroh learned this technique from studying waterbenders. And this is significant because the element of water is, as Iroh describes it, the element of change. The water tribe is known for its ability to adapt to all circumstances, which is what Zuko must learn to do if he is to complete his journey. Most importantly, though, water is the only element that we see that heals. And so if we think about like the fact that what Zuko needs to do internally and what he needs to do externally as Fire Lord is heal the damage from the past, it makes sense that he would use a technique that draws from a kind of bending that is all about healing, adapting, and change. And so, like, basically, that bending just kind of feeds into that character development where it's like he, you know... If Zuko wants to restore his honor, he must learn to balance the two parts of himself, adapt and change so that these parts are no longer in conflict, meaning walking away from everything he thought he stood for and creating a new destiny for himself, and then heal the pain of his past and the pain caused by his forefathers in the Hundred Years' War by ending the tyranny of the Fire Nation as its Fire Lord. So we're just going to pause there for a second and be like, this is why the bending matters. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so, like, that's kind of where we get, like, why that technique matters, and then further, why it matters that he sacrifices himself to, like, redirect that lightning away from Katara is that, I mean, first of all, like, that's kind of a coda to what was going on 
in the end of season two when Aang gets struck by Azula, it's because Zuko betrayed them. And so now what's kind of working is that he's resolving that earlier betrayal by basically like just switching, like basically turning the table. So now he is paired with Katara and then he is the one who gets struck. And you notice that he gets struck in the stomach, basically in the similar location as like Aang is struck in the back. So it is another one of those things where their stories and their wounds kind of reflect each other. And then like, you know, when Katara heals him, it kind of is like resolving that earlier conflict where she was going to use the, um, that like special water that ends up, you know, bringing Aang from like the brink of death. So yeah, um, that's basically really what I've got about the final Agni Kai. Um, if it wasn't clear, here's some bullet list, like, Final Agni Kai makes it so that, you know, Zuko no longer needs to redeem himself in the eyes of the Fire Lord. He has chosen to make his own destiny. By winning the Agni Kai, Zuko is now Fire Lord and no longer has a tension between his selfhood and his role. Instead of changing to fit the system he was born into, Zuko changes the system itself so that it will no longer be so brutal. Um, and then thirdly, Azula is defeated and shown to be broken. The old ways of manipulation and violence are gone. Having healed himself, Zuko can begin work to heal the world of the Fire Nation's tyranny with the help of Aang. So yeah, that's basically why the Agni Kais are important and cool and how we can kind of see how Zuko's journey kind of finishes up beautifully in the end of them. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you think about it, superheating the air is going to make lightning stronger, too. So, yeah. it like, it all... I'm sure the showrunners all, were, like, thinking that exactly. I bet they did all their research and, uh, you know, got their degrees in astrophysics. Well, actually, they didn't because of the whole orbit thing, but whatever. We'll give them a pass yeah. on that. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> you know, fantasy world. Most most unrealistic part of Avatar. I mean, in Korra, again, I, I don't know why I keep referencing Korra today, but, like, with Harmonic Inverted, the planets literally align, which, you know, also doesn't happen, so... We'll, we'll, we'll just say space works different. There's a lot of things that work different in that show, like... You mean you can't just shoot fire from your hands? I just, I do that every other day. No, unfortunately, I'm... They took my bending away. Oh, okay. Well, a uh, little teaser for the next episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, um, do you have any final thoughts? Um. Yeah, that was really good. I, 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 like I said, Zuko's arc is like probably my favorite thing in like all of fiction, not just in the show. So it's just I love analyzing and exploring more. And you had a lot of really good points about like. All the symbolism, like, wow, that, that stuff I never even thought of, most of it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, honestly, Avatar is an amazing show, and I feel like I could probably watch it a hundred times and still find new things to enjoy, or, like, spot little Easter eggs or whatever. So, honestly, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that we went through all of it. I had a great time, like, researching all my stuff, and... Just, I don't know, thinking more about the show in new ways. 
Yeah, it was really fun, and now I'm kind of sad. Like, I feel like the same way, like, finishing the show. Like, it's so sad to leave this world. Right? I feel like we could just honestly... If there weren't, like, a zillion podcasts about Avatar already, we could probably just do a whole one on that. But, um, yeah, that was was our Avatar um, trilogy. Um, (laughs) um, We hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, do you want me to do the outro this time? You did the intro? Yeah, you can do the uh, outro. Alright, so it's been Queries and Theories. I'm Ron. This is Ivy. Um, follow us on Instagram and Spotify. And um, special thanks to uh, special thanks to Gil for doing the music. Uh, we cover art and uh, design by Aubrey Warner. Uh, you can find links to their work in the doobly-doo along with our show notes. And, um, Flame On. Wait. Flamey O. Hotman. Flamey O. Hotman. Flame On is, is, is the human torch. Just kidding. Flamey O. <laughs> Hotman. <laughs> Maybe that's the crossover that we weren't expecting. Whoa, wait. We have he's, X, he's so we have... He's Susan's Comet. That's why he doesn't land. It's the human torch. <laughs> Mind has been blown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone have a great week. This has been Queries and Theories. Yeah, you want to do it? Yeah. What do we? What do you? What, what do you want me to say? The Phoenix King demands that you listen to this episode all the way through. <laughs> to complete this Avatar: The Last Airbender series. <laughs> sure. I am not that. Mark Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's an intro or an outtake, honestly. <laughs> <laughs>